Becky and I were at the second one that was held in Louisville, Kentucky, when there were about uh, maybe 300 people present. The Bible says not to do that we should not despise small beginnings. That has become the largest medical missionary conference in the world in Louisville, Kentucky, and it started very small. So who knows what God will do uh, here in Africa with this conference. I pray, my prayer is that it will have the same kind of impact on uh, medical professionals, people who are working uh, in development, people who are working uh, in health as it has in the United States and in the world. I want to talk about this subject of being the light of the world. And I want to tell a little bit of my story of how uh, God made me, and the most unlikely person perhaps, to be the light of the world. And as was in my testimony, as was in my introduction, when I was a 14-year-old boy growing up in Cambodia, my, I watched my parents as they were serving and uh, preaching the gospel to Cambodians. It was a very hard life. Uh, we were poor. Uh, every time we came to the United States, we drove crummy cars, we lived in lousy housing, and uh, I thought, you know, that's okay for my parents, but I want to make money. And uh, so that's where I was going, but God changed that in an instant. As we were traveling on a road in Cambodia, we came on the scene of a terrible accident, and uh, my father said, David, bring the thermos. And so I came uh, and we went to see this man who was alongside the road. There were people with bloody noses and broken arms, but this man was very seriously injured. You, we could see it from the car. There was a crowd of people standing around him. And so we went over to this mango tree next to the road where he was propped up. Uh, and even as we approached, I could see that his chest was misshapen, that it was crushed, he was spitting up blood, he was gasping for air, and nobody knew what to do. Well, neither did we, but my father uh, took a cup of water, poured some in the thermos, he sat down next to him, or kneeled next to him, he gave him the water, and the man tried to drink, but he couldn't drink it. He spit it out, and, and so there, there was nothing we could do. But my father, as a pastor, he, he began to talk to him in Cambodian, my father was very fluent, and he began to share with him the way of salvation through faith in Jesus, to tell the story of Jesus, and after about a minute of listening, the man just shook his head and said to my father, and it was very difficult for him to speak, he said, please, sir, don't tell me about your God. Help me. And we couldn't. And shortly after that, he died. The rest of that trip, as I traveled on, I, I could not get him out of my mind because this man was a Buddhist, and I knew that he did not go to be with Jesus because he didn't believe in Jesus. He had never heard of Jesus until my father had talked with him. And I began to pray that God would allow me to help people who were sick and dying to help them to live until they could have a chance to hear the story of Jesus. Well, that was uh, quite a prayer because I was a terrible student. I won't go into all that. I was a failing student, actually, in seventh grade. Uh, but God began to work in my life as I prayed. I didn't tell anybody either, of course, because they would have laughed. But I continued to pray this prayer. And God sent another teacher to the school. And to make a long story short, by the end of two years, I was a straight-A student in high school. And I knew that God was working on my behalf. Went to the United States. Uh, my parents had to leave Cambodia because of the war that had come. And, and uh, so we went back to the United States and, and uh, 
there I, I prepared to start medical school, but we had no money. We had no money and it's very expensive. And so I remember my mother saying to me, David, if God wants you to be a missionary doctor, he will provide. He will somehow provide. I don't know how. So my parents then decided that God was calling them to, to reach an unreached people group that had, they were working with in Cambodia across the border. That group was still in Vietnam. And so they returned to Vietnam during the war in Vietnam to reach this people group that did not know of Christ. And I went to uh, college, Geneva College, with $50. And that's a whole other story of how I, I just didn't really know what I was going to do and how God, through a series of events, some of them very humorous, provided for me. I was in my second year and doing well in, in uh, pre-med and uh, had lots of friends and my professors uh, liked me and, and uh, life was great. Uh, I was reaching towards my goal. And one day I received a, a message. I was down in the cafeteria having breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning. Another student came to me and said, David, the dean of students wants to see you in his office. I mean, this is 7 o'clock in the morning. I thought, what in the world have I done? So I went up to the office, and there not only was the dean of students, but some of my professors, they were very serious. And one of them said to me, one of my favorite professors, he said to me, David, we've received a phone call during the night. Your mother and father have been killed in Vietnam. Well, I mean, I, I just was shocked because God was supposed to protect them. And they did their best to comfort me, and uh, um, I thanked them, and we prayed together, but I, I just really wanted to be alone. There was only one person I wanted to talk to. And I went back to my room, and I locked the door, and I got on my knees. I'm not quite sure why I did that. And then I screamed at God. I said, why? Why didn't you protect them? You're God. You have all the power in the universe. You call them to go there. You say in Psalms that you'll protect your servants. Where were you? And I, I, I don't know what I expected God to do. But God spoke to me in that moment. I heard him as clearly as if you were to speak to me right now, right here. And he said these words to me. He said, David, do you trust me? Now, obviously, I did not trust God. He screwed that up totally as far as I could see. And uh, I, I said to God, how can you ask me that question? You're the one who was supposed to protect them. I haven't done anything wrong. I need to understand why you did this. And again, the Holy Spirit said to me, and I heard his voice again, David, do you trust me? I said, of course I trust you. I've trusted you since I was a small child. I've trusted you even to become a medical missionary. That's what I'm trying to do now. But how can I give myself to you and my future family if you don't tell me what you're doing? And again, the Holy Spirit said, David, do you trust me? Well, you can't argue with God and win. I, I knew that. I, it really hadn't quite entered my brain that I was having a conversation live with God. But I knew that I, he was not going to tell me. And so I said to God, fine. Fine. I mean, you're not going to tell me, and what am I supposed to do? Uh, so, yeah, yes, I, I trust you. And just like that, the Holy Spirit said, then thank me now. 
I'm not saying that every time God allows his children to go through a terrible experience that he says, thank me now. But I was lying to God, and we both knew it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I don't know how long I was there on my knees, weeping before God. But as I was, the Holy Spirit just impressed on my spirit that I was not going to do anything significant for God until I settled that issue. Because if you can't trust God when everything goes wrong, you can't trust God. And I wanted to serve him. And I knew it was right to trust him. So finally I said to him, God, I, I can't feel thankful for the loss of my parents. But because I, I want to trust you and I want to serve you, I will say the words. I had no idea if that would be enough. And so I said the hardest words I've ever said in my life. I said, thank you for taking my mother and father. And in that instant, my life changed. It was as though I can't hardly describe what happened, but I experienced God in a way I had never experienced before. I just felt his arms of love around me. And in that instant, I knew that no matter what happened, no matter where he took me, I would be okay. Because he would be my father. I got up off of my knees a different person. And I had so much joy in my heart. I still had the pain of the loss to my parents, but I have a joy that has never left me. I went back to school. I finished pre-med. I was accepted into the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. That's a whole other miracle. I don't have time to tell that story. I had no money. I had no money. Even though I'd graduated from Geneva College debt-free, and now I needed even more. And so I just said that to God. I said, God, I need money. And God provided everything that I needed. I graduated from medical school four years later, debt-free. Most of my classmates had debts of over $100,000. During that time, I met my, my wife, Rebecca, beautiful young woman. She was going in the same direction. She was training to be a nurse. We got married. God began to bless us and bless us and bless us. He took us to Gabon, a country we'd never, never heard of, a people we didn't love. But God has remedies for that. We really wanted to be in Cambodia. That's where we grew up. That's where I grew up. We wanted to be in Southeast Asia. And we fought with God over this. And finally, he said, no, I want to take you to Africa. And, and so we went to Africa, but our hearts were still back in Asia. And during that first year that we were in Gabon, in the community that there was this dispensary we'd been sent to, there, was, there were three epidemics, measles, whooping cough, and polio, plus malaria. And that first year, Approximately 500 children died in that district alone. Many of them in front of us. We couldn't do anything for them. And so God put it on our hearts to, to order vaccines from Europe and to set up a cold chain. And we started vaccinating children everywhere. But, you know, through that experience, as we saw those children die in front of us, and we saw the pain of their parents, we wept with them. And God gave us a love for those people. A lot of things happened after that. 
My wife was able to set up a nursing school, and God just led us. We didn't have a clue what we were doing. I had no idea how to build a hospital. I made lots of mistakes, but as we trusted God, as we listened to him, he guided us, he brought people to us, wonderful national leaders who worked from, with the, church, from the church who worked with us. And that hospital over the next 30 years, turned, that dispensary turned into a 160-bed hospital. We treated tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people over that period of time. And as I've shared, even just in the last 20 years, 20,000 people turned to faith in Christ and God turned the dream that he gave me as a 14-year-old boy into reality. Well, after 30 years, we were looking to forward to enjoying the fruits of our labors. Things had really improved. We had this fine hospital. We had nice operating rooms. I, I mean, there were, we had a residency program. I was training residents and discipling them. It was the best ministry I'd ever had. My wife had a ministry training and discipling nurses. People were coming to Christ every day. Our disciples were leading people to Christ. It was great. And, you know, we were getting up there in years, so we kind of thought, hey, we're sort of now on our final glide into retirement. But in 2009, God turned our world upside down. Our mission called a meeting of all of the leaders of our mission fields in Africa, about eight fields, all in West and Central Africa. And uh, we had a meeting in Dakar, Senegal. And as we were there, our regional director made a presentation about North Africa. And he showed us some statistics from uh, World uh, Operation World. He said the six countries in North Africa of Egypt, Libya, Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and Mauritania have a total of 173 million people, of which 120 million have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel or even met a Christian. Wow, that was really too bad. This is on the African continent, brothers and sisters. And then he, he asked this question, why are these people not our responsibility? Well, he asked the wrong group of people. We all were working in fields and in countries where we didn't have enough personnel, we didn't have enough budget money, there weren't enough national workers to reach all the unreached people. How in the world could we talk about taking on another 120 million people? And so we gave all our excuses. Well, he stopped the discussion after about an hour, and he said, uh, okay, um, let's, let's just have a time of prayer. And so we, we bowed our heads, and we began to pray for North Africa. And as we prayed, we began to weep. I, I am ashamed to admit but that sorrow did not come from my heart because I could have cared less about the people of North Africa. That sorrow came from the Holy Spirit. And when I realized that, that God is grieving for the people of North Africa, I couldn't help but weep. 
Before that conference was over, our little group pledged that we would pray regularly for the region. All of our teams would pray regularly for the people of North Africa, and that we would prepare somehow, no idea how, to enter all six countries by 2020 by faith. However, there were certain things that we all kept in our hearts. One was we were not going to volunteer to go to those places. And secondly, we certainly weren't going to share our financial resources, which are too small anyway, to go and help the folks who went there. That God would have to raise up new people, of course, and lots of more money. Well, God has his ways. One year later, I got an email from the Anglican bishop from Egypt, North Africa. He's actually the prelate for um, Egypt, North Africa, the Horn of Africa, Jerusalem. And uh, he wrote me this email. He said, we would like to have a PAX training program in our 100-year-old hospital in Egypt. Could you come and help us set that up? And I thought, whoa, can anything good come from the Anglican church? Um, and then I went to Egypt with my wife and found out that uh, God, uh, he works in ways and in places that we have no idea. This is a wonderful church that God is using one, in a great way. And uh, Bishop, uh, the Bishop Munir is a godly man with a great vision for reaching unreached people in his country. Turns out there are 50 million people in his country that have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel. So we visited the hospital and said, you know, you have everything it takes to have a surgical training program. There's some things that need improvement and we'll pray that God will provide some expatriate surgeons from North America who know how we do these training programs to come help and, and so forth. And he said, okay, that, that, that'll be tough, but you know, that's good, we're glad. And a couple days later, as he was taking us to the airport, he said, uh, listen, David, uh, we've been meeting, our team has been meeting, and we would like you to be one of the surgeons who comes and sets up the program. And I said, whoa, 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 uh, I, uh, thank you, it's a great honor to be considered, but you know, I, I'm 64. Uh, you, need a, you need some young surgeons, full of energy, who can learn languages, Arabic's gonna be a tough, language to learn. He says, no, we need somebody, one of those surgeons to have gray hair and lots of experience because this is going to be hard. And I said, well, thank you, but you know, God is, is not um, calling us. He says, really? Okay. But he said, uh, can I pray that he does? I said, well, Bishop, sure you can, but I can tell you already um, it's not going to happen. So he smiled and we left. Um, I got back to Gabon, got back to my work. I could not get Egypt off my brain. Every time I sat down to pray, the first thing that came to my mind was Egypt. And I thought, okay, I've seen the pyramids and I've seen the Sphinx, that's what this is all about. And uh, so I kept trying to you know, push that aside so I could pray about serious stuff and, and read the Bible and hear what God was saying to me. And then finally, after about two weeks of this, I said, Lord, are you trying to speak to me about this? And the Lord said, yes, I want you to go to Egypt. Oh, oh my goodness, the, the Lord just has this way of upending our best plans and dreams. And I, I just said, oh my goodness, how am I going to tell my wife? And so finally I waited till she was in a really good mood. And uh, I said, honey, I think God is calling us to go to Egypt. She said, no way, there is no way that God is calling me to do that. You, you just want to travel. And but, you know, we had this uh, not really great conversation. And um, so I finally she gave a great suggestion. She said, I tell you what, let's pray about this. Let me pray and uh, I'll get back to you. So waited for a month. I thought, is she really praying? But I didn't dare say anything. Finally, after about a month and a half, she came to me and she said, David, I think you're right. God is calling us to 
go to Egypt. But I think that we, we need some confirmation from him. So does our team. We can't just go up and leave them in the lurch. So let's pray that if God wants us to go, he'll provide another surgeon to take your place and he'll pro pro uh, provide someone to take my place at the nursing school. And I said, okay. But I thought to myself, this will never happen. We've been trying for 10 years. But we did, we, we began to pray. Within three months, we had two surgeons and a nurse. So then we had no excuses. We had, to, we had to do what God was calling us to do. And so last January, we moved to Egypt. And for the last six months, we've been studying Arabic. I'm happy to tell you that now, after six months of intensive language study, I can speak Arabic like a three-year-old. Uh, I'm hoping it gets better. But um, the, the question that perhaps you're asking and that we asked ourselves is how can a surgeon and a nursing instructor help 120 million people in North Africa hear about Jesus? Well, obviously, God is going to have to do something really interesting, and he's good at that. But let me tell you a story to, to help you understand how, how God is already working. This is not certainly our idea. He's already very much at work. I met a 25-year-old anesthesiologist from one of the countries in North Africa, and uh, she told her story in a meeting that uh, I was at, and, and during the, it was a very moving story. She talked about how when she was a young girl, uh, she went to Islamic school, and there she, she learned about the Quran, but she asked too many questions, so she got in trouble, and it got worse as she got older, and so she was told on numerous occasions that she was going to spend a long time in hell. Well, this got worse as she got older. She became quite discouraged. And by the time she got to university, she felt called to go into medicine, really loved medicine. By the time she got to university, she had given up. She had said, she had just said to herself, I'm going to help. There is no way that I can meet all the requirements that they ask for me to make it to please God. God is angry at me. He will always be angry at me. Um, and so I might as well just do the best I can. Well, one day she was in class and sitting in class and the, and the girl next to her in, in class began to talk to her and said, can I tell you a little bit about my story? And she said, sure. And so she told about how she had met Jesus. And as she was talking about God's love, how she, Jesus loves us, he died for our sins, this young anesthesiologist, we'll call her Fatima, she just began to weep. And she said, stop, stop, I don't know what's happening. Just, I can't hear this. But a month later, she came back to her friend and she said, tell me more. And so her friend talked to her about this again. And again, Fatima began to just weep. And so finally, she went with her friend to this little church. And in this little church, she met Jesus, gave her life to him. And she became the light of the world to her classmates, to her medical colleagues. She has led many to faith in Christ. Today, in that part of Algeria, from her tribe, 100,000 people have turned from Islam to Christ. God is not waiting for us to get with the program. In all of the countries of North Africa, God is preparing people to hear a clear explanation of the gospel. But that preparation that he is doing includes two things. And the first of those is he is opening people's spiritual eyes. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, the Apostle Paul said, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. 
The Spirit of God must take away the veil covering the eyes of the people of North Africa, and God is already at work doing this. But there must be a second component to this, and that is that there must be messengers with skin on who are visible, the visible light of Christ, and to make disciples. Why is it so important that we be light? Why is it so important to God? Isn't Jesus the light of the world? Of course he's the light of the world. But he said to his disciples in Matthew 5, 14, he said, you are the light of the world, like a city that cannot be hidden. In Acts 14, 37, the apostle Paul said, for the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the furthest corners of the earth. We are living in one of the largest cities in the world. People are crammed into 10 or 20 story apartment buildings farther than the eye can see. The air is polluted, there are few trees, there is no grass, there are almost no flowers, there are no public parks. People live at a frenetic pace, holding down several jobs at a time to make ends meet. People, cars, noise are everywhere. It goes on 20 hours a day. But the statistic that blows me away is this one. An estimated 50 million people in this, that country don't know why Jesus came to earth 20 centuries ago, and few dare tell them. There are places in that country that if they believe in Jesus, they will be abandoned by their friends, they will be threatened by their family, they will betrayed, be betrayed by their neighbors, they will be arrested by the religious police, and beaten, possibly accused of blasphemy. If they don't recant their faith in Jesus, they may lose their jobs and their children and risk dying from strange accidents. If the church hides them or protects them, it risks being looted and burned down. In case you think I'm exaggerating, a few months ago, a young woman in that country chose to believe in Jesus and to marry a Christian. The couple eloped and fled the country. A crowd attacked and firebombed the local church, even though the, the, the priest knew absolutely nothing about this couple. The police arrested the young man's parents, but did nothing to those who attacked the church. The affair was then hotly debated by members of the national parliament. And the, girl's, the lawyer hired by the girl's family was invited by the president of the country to discuss how security forces might find and return the couple, break up the marriage, and investigate for foreign involvement. But if you think that the people of this country are worse than the unbelievers in your own country and in my own country, you would be wrong. The people who do these things are some of the kindest, most honorable, and hospitable people on the planet and they are zealous for God. So why do they persecute Christians? Just as Jesus predicted, they believe that in doing so, they are serving God. The enemy of our souls has constructed a vast prison of darkness in North Africa that for the past 17 centuries has kept generation after generation, countless millions of people locked away from the light of Jesus. Unless something dramatically changes, 
Most of those who are born into that prison of darkness will never understand the message of Jesus before they die. Are you okay with that? My wife and I are just two small, flickering candles in that vast darkness, though we are not alone. There are 10 million Christians in the country I live in, but it's not like that in all the other five countries. What possible difference can we make? It's pretty difficult to imagine, isn't it? And yet we know that Satan, the enemy of our souls, the father of all this darkness, fears us. He trembles at our presence. Why should Satan be afraid of people like us? He trembles because we carry within us the Spirit of God. He trembles because this is exactly how the great churches throughout the world were started in country after country. At one time in some African countries, there were more missionary graves than there were believers. But today, some of these same churches number in the millions. My grandfather was one of the first eight missionaries to Vietnam in 1914. There were no Christians at that time. Today, the church numbers 1.2 million just of the, the denomination that he worked with. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, the Apostle Paul said, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. All of the churches of the world today started with tiny candles of light, like you and I, frail, imperfect human beings who fail, who make mistakes, who fight among themselves, if you can believe it, but who are filled with the Holy Spirit and who followed him at enormous cost to themselves, being despised by the world. My medical colleagues, my friends and brothers who are working in ministries to help suffering people. What this means is that in God's eyes, you and I are not first and foremost doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, or development people. We are God's lights in the world. And that's why we're still here on this planet. That's why God has not taken us to heaven the moment he gives us the Holy Spirit. It's not because we're perfect. It's not because we know everything. It's not because we know what we're doing. It's not because we don't make terrible mistakes. It's because God has made this so. He has decided that we are the light of the world. And what we do to take, is to take care of sick people 60 or 80 hours a week, but what we are is God's light in the world. And that brings great responsibility. Because where we don't go, or where we won't go, darkness reigns. The question for us today is this. Are we lighting the world with our God-given light, or are we hiding it, protecting it, or even wasting it? Jesus never called us to protect the light from those who might harm it. He told us to be bold and to show our light off in a way that glorifies God. This room is full of light today. It is full of the light of Jesus because there are so many of us. It's a preview of heaven, but this is not where our light is needed the most. 
We must be light to our families. We must be light to our communities. We must be light to our countries. But we, to be the light of the world, we must take ourselves to the darkest places on the planet, even if they are unwelcoming, unwelcoming and dangerous. Our instinct is to avoid those places, is it not? For a decade before God called me to North Africa, I prayed that he would break the power of the spiritual prison that holds nearly a billion people in the world today hostage. Since moving to North Africa six months ago, I have often pleaded with God to bring down the walls of the spiritual citadel that holds so many in darkness, like he brought down the walls of Jericho. I've asked him, Lord, how can these people come to know you if they can't hear the message? How can they come to you if they don't, can't even talk to us without getting in trouble? How can they join churches to become discipled if they have to flee their homelands and abandon their families to follow you? One day as I was praying this way, God said to me, David, I will not break Satan's power over these nations until my people take the light I have given them into Satan's strongholds. When you are there, my light will be there because I will be there with you. God wants to open the spiritual prisons of the world with us, with us, not apart from us. Before he died of appendicitis in Egypt as a young man, Oswald Chambers said, God does not work, want us to work for him, but to work with him. Jesus wants to remove the veil over the eyes of the nations that are in darkness, but he wants to do it with us. This is not a new principle. It's what God has always called his people to do from the time of Abraham. This is why we are still here. Some see this as a great burden, God's un unwelcome assignment, our endless duty, even a contradiction of the doctrine of grace. But all of heaven sees the last command of Christ as our privilege it is our honor, our supreme honor, to, to work with God, to seek out and find his eternal family. Let me make this clear. Our salvation does not depend on obeying the Great Commission. It is the salvation of lost people that depends on our obedience. Our obedience to the Great Commission is not why God loves us, but our obedience is a measure of our love for God. So is our love for God fiery hot today or has it grown cold? Are we the loyal church of Ephesus, described in Revelation chapter two, whose love for Jesus was rapidly cooling, or would it be more accurate to compare us to the compromising church of Pergamum? Are we the suffering church of Smyrna that is willing to pay the price to obey Christ in full, or are we the lukewarm and comfortable church of Laodicea? Do we even care about the unreached nations of the earth? Or as medical professionals, are we attending this conference for the medical lectures? When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say some of the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. But some of us have changed that to exclude those who persecute Christians, who burn churches. Some of us have already judged them in our hearts like I did and consigned them to hell. But John the Baptist was right. 
Jesus did take away all the sin of the world. He did die for the enemies of the cross, just as surely as he died for our sins. And he mourns for the nations that don't yet know him. Though we like to think so, our lesser sins do not make us more worthy of God's grace than those who consider us their enemies. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We are called to be light to both the victims of injustice and the perpetrators of injustice. We cannot choose between them. How can it be the light of the world and not just the light of our family or the light of our work or the light of our own countries? It's very simple. Keep the fire of, for, for, of your love for Jesus red hot. If you are thinking of serving God by sacrificing, you're on the wrong track. You're on the path of works for God's favor and of pride. God already made the sacrifice. Our response must be to love him. So totally that we will obey him. He knows what we need to do. And most of the time, it is not what we want to do. I'm speaking for myself. The problem is that our love for Jesus has cooled because we love our idols more. I know about this. Because there have been times in my life when I gloried in being a doctor and then being a surgeon. I wanted everyone to know that I was a surgeon, a Christian surgeon, of course. But first and foremost, a surgeon. That is not how God sees me. The sign that we have allowed idols to displace God in our hearts is that we find it easy to disobey his commands. Our light dims because when we disobey him, we cannot defeat Satan. Some of us have made idols of our denominations, our institutions, our churches, we serve them, not God, because they match our own agenda and they are less demanding gods. I made an idol of my own hospital. It was what God called me to do, but it came to a place where it was more important than drawing near to Jesus and obeying his commands. If the idol, it's the idols of our hearts that make us indifferent to the fate of lost people. I'm convinced that this is where doubts about the lostness of people comes from in every new generation of believers. These are the early symptoms of hearts that have displaced God for less demanding gods. As medical missionaries, we most certainly identify with the Good Samaritan. But until our love for Jesus comes first in our hearts, not our medical careers or our medical reputations, we will follow the examples of the priest and the Levite, and we will turn away from suffering people, and we will defend it to our last breath. Other than throwing out our idols and loving God with all of our hearts, all of our mind, all of our soul, what else can we do? We can light fires of love for God in others. We can light fires of God, of love for God in others. God wants to make every, every saint a spiritual pyromaniac. 
Before we can infuse God's passions in other people, our hearts have to be on fire for God. God intends that we be more than beacons. He wants us to set fire to other hearts. And you cannot do it if your own heart is not on fire with love for God. You cannot do it if you have other idols. Not addition, but multiplication. The lights in Jesus' day were not LED lights. They were lanterns with flames in them. And as you know, even a tiny flame can spread and become a vast conflagration. That's how our Jerusalems, our Judeas, our Samarias will be reached for Christ. And that's where Africa's future medical missionaries will come from and go to the darkest places on earth. Let me close with this, a very tough question. Is what we're doing today to obey Jesus the best that we can do? Is this it? Is this the measure of our love for Christ? In almost every nation in Africa, we have more wealth than our parents and our grandparents had. How much of it are we giving back to God for the kingdom? And how much are we keeping for ourselves? I hope and pray that you are doing better than the average American Christian. The richest church in the world gives an average of 2% of its income to reach the world. I have heard, of Af heard African Christians say time and again that Africa's churches does not have the resources to send and support missionary teams outside of their own countries. And I have to confess that I know of only two African medical professionals, I hope you know of many more, who are serving outside of their homeland for the sake of the gospel. And these two are being supported by European churches. It might help to compare our resources with the resources of the early apostles. Consider this, not one of them owned a car or rode in a bus. Not one of them traveled to a foreign country by train or in an airplane, although Philip did fly once. Their most frequent mode of transportation, even to places as remote as India and Ireland, was on foot or in small wind-driven ships that had a tendency to sink. Yet before they were all martyred, except for the Apostle John, they succeeded in planting churches in almost all of the known world. And in the light of their faith and obedience, how do our excuses stand up? My second question is, is the response of the African churches to the Great Commission strategic? Is it strategic? How do we complete the last command of Christ if we avoid the least reached nations on our continent? And I say our because I have lived on this continent more than I have lived in the United States. How do we do this if we spend most of our resources helping those who have already heard the gospel and aren't sure if they want to follow through? If we ourselves can't go to the darkest places of the earth with our light, are we discipling others to do it? Are we sending others to do it? The 120 million unreached people living in the six countries of this region represent the largest unreached block of nations in Africa. If we are serious about obeying Christ's last command, we cannot ignore the continent that we are living in and turn a blind eye to these people. So I ask you the same question that was asked of me. Why are these people not our responsibility? 
Let me suggest, finally, three ways that medical professionals can open doors to North Africa. First of all, pray with them. Not for them, with them. That means getting involved enough to know how to pray for them. There are websites you can go to to find out what's happening in that nation. There are prayer letters coming out of that place and from their churches. Secondly, stand with them. Speak out for them when they suffer persecution. Go and visit them and take pictures of their burned churches. Hear their stories of being shot and imprisoned for Jesus. It will change you forever. Thirdly, shine with them. If you pray for them and stand with them, God may open a door for you to go and live among them and shine with them as he has for my wife and I, medical professionals of Africa, I give you this charge. Join hands with the brothers and sisters of North Africa. They are discouraged. They are tired. They are afraid of the future and for their children. And they are struggling to love their enemies. 17 centuries of darkness is long enough. And our God is on the move. If you will believe the promises of God, I promise you that you, he will be faithful. And he will do the impossible through you. Forget about who gets the credit. Just obey God. I can see African professionals working in partnership with believers in North Africa in private and government medical facilities. I can see them serving on teams with like-minded Christian professionals to collectively shine for Jesus. I can see them setting up and supporting their own missionary sending organizations and supporting the churches that are existing already in North Africa. When I pray, I can see people from North Africa coming to Jesus. Not by the hundreds, not by the thousands, not by the tens of thousands, not even by the millions. What I see is God gathering tens of millions of people into his family from North Africa. And why not? Our God is all powerful. We are his children and he lives within us. What about you? Are you ready to be more than a medical professional? Are you willing to be God's light and shine wherever he leads you? Are you ready to get rid of the idols of your heart that make it hard for you to obey God and to love lost people in other nations and in your own community? Are you ready to obey God's call? Then come. Come stand here before God, not before me. Humble yourselves before him and say, God, take away my idols, the ones you've shown me today. Come and tell him. Throw them out of your heart and let Jesus' love fill your heart, your love for Christ to fill your heart and do whatever he asks you to do. I want to give an invitation as musicians begin to pray, and I won't drag this out. 
But I can't think of a better way to start this conference than to come before God and say, God, I want you to speak to me this week. I want you to speak to me today and tomorrow. I want to hear your voice, and I want to obey. This is the place to start. Would you come? And uh, after a few moments, there's a prayer room here down below that if you go down the steps there, and I would invite any pastors who are here, any of the conference organizers, any missionaries, please go with them and pray with them. Let's just pray together for God's Spirit to work in our midst right now. Lord Jesus, you are here. You are here. And you have spoken, not because I spoke, but because you are here. You are here in us, and you are here with us. You have given us your words. Help us, Lord Jesus, to hear. Help us to throw out the idols of our hearts that have taken your place. Fill that space with a burning love for you that makes us love lost people more than our own comforts and our own safety and our own agendas. Speak to us this day, this night, tomorrow. Thank you, Lord, that the best is yet to come. Be glorified. Be glorified in our midst. Be glorified in this place. Be glorified on this continent, and especially where your name is not known yet. Be glorified, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen.